Well, good morning. My name is Jason, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church. And it is a joy to again open God's word with you this morning. John Bunyan was an English pastor and author. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which became the most published book after the King James Bible in the English language in all of history. Even though Bunyan became a celebrated author, he was born poor. He was born in 1628 to a traveling tinsmith. Bunyan's father would travel fixing pots and pans. And Bunyan married poor. He wrote, we came together, he and his wife, as poor as poor might be. Not having so much household stuff as a dish or a spoon between us both. His wife's only dowry was two Christian books. They had dowries in England at that time. Bunyan's conversion to Christ came through reading those Christian books and then hearing poor washerwomen speaking about the things of heaven and of eternity with such conviction that it convicted Bunyan. Soon after coming to faith, Bunyan became a preacher, though he had to continue working as a tinsmith like his father to supplement his income as a gospel minister. John Bunyan knew poverty. But he also knew oppression. He was arrested in 1661 unjustly for not conforming to the new laws regarding the Church of England. And so Bunyan spent much of the next 12 years in prison, separated from his wife and his four children. The judge told him that if if he would just stop preaching, he could go home at any time. But Bunyan felt he could not in good conscience stop preaching as God had called him to the ministry. And so he sat in jail. And what did he do? Well, he couldn't preach, and so he wrote. And he wrote nine books over those next 12 years, including Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of my favorite books. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory of the Christian life. It tells the story of a pilgrim named Christian who was delivered from the burden on his back, his sin, at the cross of Christ. And it tells of his journey from earth to heaven. At one point in this allegory, which in many ways reflects Bunyan's own journey, Christian and his companion, Hopeful, are locked up in Doubting Castle under the authority of a giant named Despair. And how are Christian and Hopeful delivered from Doubting Castle? Well, they had been given a key called Promise. And that promise, which is a picture of God's promises for us, unlocks Doubting Castle. And they escape from the the burden of doubts and despair that plague Christians. You see what comforted Bunyan in the midst of his poverty and oppression? It was the character of God and the sure promises of God. The New Testament writer James is writing to Christians who are facing poverty and oppression And what is his answer to the threat of their discouragement in these trials? Well, he too reminds them of the character of God and of the sure promises of God. This letter, the New Testament book of James, is written to comfort Christians who are facing serious difficulties. And James reminds them that God is with them, that God has not forgotten them. And he encourages them not to lose heart. Turn with me, if you will, to the New Testament letter of James, to James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We'll be looking at James 5, 1 to 6, 
as well as chapter 5 and verse 12. And our main point from the text this morning is this, our main point. The Lord will judge oppressors and deceivers. The Lord will judge oppressors and deceivers. And we'll have this in two points. The first point, verses 1 through 6, is a warning against oppressors. And the second point from verse 12, a warning against deceivers. Pray that this morning that we would listen to these warnings and take comfort in the Lord who alone can offer salvation for sinners like us and who alone can defend his people by executing perfect justice. Let's begin with point one. Point one, a warning against oppressors. Let's start reading in James 5, 1 through 6. We'll read it one more time. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. So what is happening in this passage? Sounds like some of us were scratching our heads as we studied this in small groups around the city this week. A bit confused. What is happening in this passage? Well, I'm sure you have some questions. Let me ask a handful of those questions and answer them as we work through the text. And I hope that this will help us begin to understand what's going on here. First, who is God speaking to in this passage? Who is God speaking to in this passage? Well, you see most directly there in verse 1, to rich people. To rich people. Come now, you rich does that mean that James is warning all rich people? Well, no. No, it's a certain set of rich people. It is rich oppressors, those taking advantage of the poor, including the poor Christians that James is writing to. So what are these rich oppressors doing that makes God so angry? Well, two things. God is angry with how they are getting rich, and he's angry with what they are doing with their riches. So number One, how are they getting rich? Well, it's clear from this passage through fraud, through cheating people. They are cheating laborers of fair pay. They are withholding wages from people who have worked for them when it's in their power to pay them. Look with me at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In cheating laborers from basic pay for their work, they have condemned and murdered them. You see that in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Remember last week how with our judgmental words, we can climb up on that judgment seat and 
judge people. Well, these rich people were acting as evil judges, not with their words, but by using their authority as employers to withhold pay. Instead of paying their workers a fair wage for their, for their survival, the rich are leaving them to starve. And in doing this, they are condemning the poor. They are, James says, murdering them through their neglect. They are real-life Ebenezer Scrooges, tight-fisted, selfish, and blind to the needs of their neighbors. And it isn't comical, and God isn't laughing. But God is angry with the rich, not only for how they got their riches through fraud and through cheating, but also with what they are doing with their riches. They are hoarding riches. They are rich oppressors piling up more wealth than they can possibly use. In fact, they've hoarded so much, it's going bad on them. You see that in verses 2 and 3. Their riches have rotted. Their garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Remember that rich fool that Jesus tells the parable about in the Gospels? who tore down his barns to build bigger ones and to fill them with grain and then to take his ease. These rich people have hoarded wealth to such a degree that it has begun to rot, which grain will do if you have too much of it and don't use it in a proper time. And the riches have begun to corrode, which metals can do if you have so much of it that some of it gets neglected and perhaps gets wet or damp. In spite of this, They refuse to share with the poor when it's in their power to do it. These rich are living in luxury and self-indulgence, blind to the cries of the people around them who are hurting. Another question of this text, some of you asked this week, are these rich people Christians? No. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at the nature of the warning. These people are being promised eternal punishment. Do you see that in verse 1? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 3, the corrosion of their hoarded gold and silver will eat your flesh like fire. In verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is the promise of eternal damnation. These rich are facing God's eternal wrath. And not only, is, um, not only can we see that these are not Christians based on the wrath that's being threatened, but also with the way that they're treating their neighbors. Christians would not treat their brothers and their neighbors in this callous way, cold to their needs. Another question, what kind of passage is this? What kind of passage is this? It doesn't sound like the rest of James, does it? Well, it's a warning passage. This is a prophecy, very similar to the kinds of prophecy that you find in the Old Testament prophets. James is crying out against the wicked, and he's crying out against the rich in the presence and in the hearing of the poor, God's people who are poor, so that they would hear it. He's prophesying against the wicked. He's holding court. And he's telling the wicked of the evidence that is stacked up against them. And he's warning them of the witnesses that are ready to stand up to testify against them. 
A similar passage in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 25 in verse 34, where Jeremiah prophesies to God's people against a whole list of wicked kings. And he says this, Jeremiah 25, 34, Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, roll in the dust, you leaders of the flock, because the days of your slaughter have come. You will fall and become shattered like a precious vase. So what is God doing? What, what is the purpose of a prophecy like this? Well, this kind of prophecy serves two purposes. One, it's an opportunity for the wicked to repent. It's an opportunity for the wicked to repent. But it also serves as a comfort for God's people. So first, here we have in this warning an opportunity to repent. Within the warning itself is an opportunity for these wicked, rich oppressors to turn from their wicked ways. Do you remember a few months ago when Pastor Dave was preaching from Jonah? And Jonah went to Nineveh. Eventually, he went the long way around via a fish. And when he arrived in Jonah chapter 3, he cried out against Nineveh, against the city. And what did he say to them? Jonah 3 and verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet, three, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, was, was Nineveh overthrown? Was Nineveh destroyed in Jonah's day? No, it wasn't. Why not? Because they heard the warning. They repented of their sins, and they cast themselves upon the mercy of God. And he relented from the anger and the wrath that he was going to pour upon them. These warnings can lead to salvation if, if the wicked would but listen and if they would repent of their sin. We see in Ezekiel chapter 3 God's instruction to Ezekiel as a watchman of Israel. He says to Ezekiel, when you hear a word from my mouth, he tells Ezekiel, you give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, God tells Ezekiel to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life. You see, a warning has the purpose of saving a life. And in verse 21, he says, but if you warn the person not to sin, and he does not sin, he will indeed live because he listened to your warning. So Christian... Let me tell you this morning, you are a child of God if you have trusted in Christ. And praise God that at some point in your life, you heard a warning like this, a warning to flee from God's wrath upon your sin. And praise God that he is a merciful God who shows mercy to sinners like us, though we don't deserve it, bearing with us with a long-suffering mercy. He is patient with sinners. Our God is long-suffering in his mercy. And he is not willing that sinners like us should be destroyed without warnings and without such calls to repentance. Our God is slow to anger. Praise him. Let me tell you this morning, if you are one of these rich oppressors, one who is dealing with people in an oppressive way, let me tell you this morning, from this passage, repent. Repent even today before it is too late. 
If you are here in this room, if you are still alive and you are a rich oppressor, oppressing the poor, this message is God's grace to you. That means right now God is offering you a chance to flee from the wrath to come. Do not continue on your wicked way. One day it will be too late. If you are alive today to hear this warning, it is not too late. As long as you can hear a warning like this, there is hope for you, O sinner. But there is a day coming when it will be too late. For Scripture tells us it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. If you are hearing this warning today, do not wait. Do not delay. Flee to Christ. And let me encourage you, there is enough mercy in Christ to forgive every sinner, any sinner, if you will just come to him. Where else will you go with your sin? Who else can wash away your sin like this Savior? Let me encourage you, Christian, in your evangelism. If this judgment is coming, and if it is real, and if it is this devastating, what then should we do? Well, we should warn the wicked to repent. We should do all that we can to get in the way of the wicked heading towards destruction. It is a merciful and kind thing to warn unbelievers from their wicked way, from the way of destruction. It is a loving thing to warn unbelievers of the judgment that is coming. If there is someone in your life that you know that you should share the gospel with, that you should warn of the wrath that is to come, let me encourage you, sinner, do not wait. Go and tell them. Let me also encourage you as as a church that church discipline is a similar warning to what James is doing here. It's a warning for an unrepentant sinner. We see in this passage that James is holding sort of a Um, an initial court scene, which is a picture of the the eventual court that is going to be held when Christ judges all of the earth. In a similar way, church discipline is a reminder of the judgment that is coming, a small court that foreshadows that final court. And it is an opportunity for us to warn the sinner before it is too late. So this warning is an opportunity for the wicked to repent. But it's also, it's also a comfort for those that are oppressed. It's a comfort for God's people who are being oppressed. This warning is a reminder that one day, and one day soon, God will judge. One day, oppression will cease. These warnings serve as a reminder to us as God's people that, that He is with us, that He has not forgotten us that he hears our cries for help, that he is keeping records, and one day he will settle accounts, and no wicked soul will escape that judgment. This is a comfort for the suffering and for those that are oppressed. It is interesting to note that James assumes in his book that Christians in general were not rich. James didn't believe in the prosperity gospel. He had no illusions of Christians having earthly prosperity. In fact, he assumes that Christians are poor, and he assumes that most of the rich people are wicked and are using their riches for evil. We see that in James 1, verses 9 to 11, where he tells the poor brother, 
to take pride in his high position, James 1 verse 9. That is, take pride in his heavenly position, that he is a child of the king, that he is an heir of the kingdom that is to come, that he is God's son. And he tells the rich to look forward to his humiliation because the rich is going to be stripped of his riches. Death is a great leveler. You can't take it with you. We also see in James 2, a section on partiality where he's encouraging Christians not to hold the faith with partiality. That is, treating the rich in a better way than they would treat the poor. And his reason? Because God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. And then he also, again, in a foreshadowing of this passage, explains how the rich are going to be punished because of their wicked ways. Now, are there any rich people in Scripture? Are there there any exceptions to this rule in the early church? Well, there were, it appears, a handful of Christians who were more well-to-do financially. See in Acts 4, Barnabas sells a plot of land that he owns, and he brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet to care for the poor in the church. We see in Philemon, which we studied just recently, along with Priscilla and Aquila, as people in the early church that were hosting churches in their house, using the resources that they had for the good of the church and for the building up of the body of Christ. We see people like Gaius and Lydia and Rufus's mother exercising hospitality, hosting ministers of the gospel in their home. But even though there are a a handful of people in the scripture that are more well-to-do financially, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 1.26, there were not many wise who were called. There were not many powerful. There were not many of noble birth that were called to salvation as an encouragement to the poor. So is wealth bad? No. Are you more holy for being poor? Well, no. The problem is not with money. The Bible doesn't say that money is bad. The problem is with the love of it, the love of money. The problem is with our hearts. The love of money leads to all kinds of evil. You know, Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Why did he talk so much about money? Because he knew the hold that money can have on our hearts. That we would love it so much that it would lead to hell, to our destruction. Tim Keller in his little book, Counterfeit Gods, explains how money is a more surface level idol in the hearts of of, of people. And that as money is a surface idol, underneath that surface idol of money, as people run after money, there's deeper idols underneath that. That is, money is a surface idol because we idolize what it offers. Whether it's control or power, whether it's security, whether it's comfort, whether it's our image or success or a reputation that such money can give us. Many people run after the same thing in order to get different things. Those deeper idols can be in all of our hearts. But we will all chase money in order to get some of those things. So I wonder... This morning, Christian, 
Are you driven by a desire for money? Are you driven by a desire for money? I wonder, underneath that desire, what else drives your desire for money? What are you looking to in this world for ultimate satisfaction? Brothers and sisters, don't look to money to give what only God can give. Only God can give us true security and true significance. Run to God for your security and your hope and your significance. Do not trust in uncertain riches. Jesus says that it is almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. But there are some examples of rich coming to Christ, like Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Do you remember Zacchaeus, the short and rich tax collector? He climbed up in the tree and Jesus sought him out and said, I'm coming to your house today. And on the way, it says that Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Luke 19 and verse 8, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, that is, if I have cheated anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come to this house. How did Jesus know that Zacchaeus had been saved, that Zacchaeus had trusted in Christ? Because his relationship with money changed. His relationship with money changed. Rather than being concerned to hoard wealth for himself, he was met with the mercy and generosity of God in his salvation. He realized all that God had saved him from in saving him from his sins. And all of a sudden, generosity sprung up in his heart. All of a sudden, a kindness and a love for those around him sprung up in his heart. And rather than just doing what was just, Zacchaeus became generous. He became open-handed and loving towards those around him. You see, when we chase after money, the distinction between what we need and what we want gets very blurry. Let me tell you, Christian, if you are pursuing money, you know it will never be enough. The pursuit of money means you will always be looking for just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And the irony is, the more you get, the less it is satisfying. The more you get, the less you're able to enjoy it. And at the end of the day, the amazing thing is, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You think of the, the pharaohs in Egypt that buried themselves with gold and with jewels and precious stones, thinking that somehow they could take it over into the afterlife. It's a fruitless endeavor. You cannot take it with you. So what should we do? Should we spend our lives building a kingdom that we're going to leave for someone else? No, spend your life storing up treasures in heaven. Spend your life storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. When you pursue Christ and His kingdom and spend your life doing good, you will build for yourselves treasures that no one can take away. Only the treasures in heaven are secure. 
Let me encourage you, Redeemer, as a church, from a passage like this. I want to recognize that we live in a place where there is great ethnic diversity, and there is also great socioeconomic diversity. There are very rich people in this city, and there are very poor people in this city. And the dynamics that James was facing 2,000 years ago are very similar to the dynamics that we are facing here in the UAE today. I want to acknowledge that we have many members in our midst who are suffering from exactly this, the oppression of rich oppressors. They're having their pay withheld when it's in the power of their employers to pay them. There are people here this morning that have been oppressed, taken advantage of. I want to acknowledge that there is great salary diversity in our city. And very often someone can earn more for the same work, not because of their education or credentials, but simply because of the passport that they hold or the nation that they come, come from. Let me encourage you, Christian. If you are being oppressed, God knows. If you are being oppressed, God sees. And God will reward you for your faithfulness. Let me encourage you, Christian, work for God. Do not work for your employer. And do not work for money, which you cannot take with you. I want you to know that as a pastor, I'm so encouraged with the knowledge that there are those among us who, regardless of the level of their bank account, find ways to leverage what God has entrusted with them for the kingdom. It's a delight to see Christians responding to God's generosity with generosity back to him. Many of you give faithfully, cheerfully, thoughtfully to the support of the church through your offerings or through a benevolence offering to care for the needs of those among us. Some of you open up your homes for evangelistic opportunities, for church events, for small group gatherings where God's people can have fellowship and encourage one another. I know that there are some who use their studio flats or their one-bedroom apartments to host gatherings of members, meals for groups to encourage fellowship and spiritual conversation. Some of you buy restaurant vouchers at a discount to invite members to meals for spiritual conversation and mutual encouragement. Some of you have contributed to desperate needs of other saints here in this church. Things like an emergency surgery or groceries or that rent payment that's overdue. And whether you're Barnabas and able to sell land and give a large amount to the church, or whether you're that widow that Jesus drew attention to with nothing but a might. Let me encourage you, Christian, whatever you have, whatever you've been entrusted with, use it for the sake of the kingdom. You will never be ashamed on that day when you stand before God for what you have given away to him and to his people. The only Durham that you can be sure will, you will not have wasted is the Durham that you have given away for the sake of the kingdom. As we consider this passage, let me draw your attention to Christ, to our Savior. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, Our Savior was rich, and yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. What does that mean? It means that Jesus left 
the side of his father in heaven. He left the wonder and the splendors of heaven to come to earth to be born in in a manger, in a, a cattle feeding trough, to a poor carpenter and his young wife. Why? Why did he come to earth to be born into a poor family and to be raised in a poor family in Galilee? So that he could bring us poor sinners back with him to God. So that he could reconcile us poor sinners who deserved God's wrath and reconcile us with our rich God and make us sons and daughters of God. Make us heirs of the kingdom. Jesus submitted himself to unjust treatment. He submitted himself to the death of a criminal on a cross, which he did not deserve. Why? So that he could take our wrath for us. So that he could stand in our place, take the judgment and the wrath that was due to us, so that we could become rich. So that we could become children of God. Let me encourage you, Christian. If you have trusted in this Christ, you are rich. And if you have trusted in this Christ, God is with you. He has given you his Holy Spirit as a down payment of eternal life. Proof that he will be with you forever. And your Savior knows your suffering. He experienced your suffering. He hears your cries. And one day he will set everything right. That's point number one. Warning against oppressors. Point number two from verse 12 of chapter 5. Warning against deceivers. Warning against deceivers. Let's pick up reading in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What is this swearing that James is talking about here? Well, let me tell you up front, it's not cursing or using dirty language. Though let me tell you, don't curse or use dirty language. But do that for other reasons, not from this passage. What James is talking about here is using swearing or oath-taking in order to deceive people. That is, swearing falsely, as it's said in the Old Testament. Well, what is this specific kind of deception? Using oaths and promises to deceive and to mislead people, whether to get out of an obligation or more likely to cheat or swindle people out of money or with sales to offer an inferior product at a superior price. How do we know this? Well, let me point you quickly to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Turn to Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Jesus talks about this, and he talks about it at more length. And this is what James is referring to. Matthew 5, 33. This is what Jesus says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now let me say quickly what Jesus and James is not saying. He's not saying that that you are forbidden from entering into any kind of oath or covenant. It's clear from Scripture that it's okay to take oaths and covenants. Even God enters into covenants with his people. And it's clear from Malachi chapter 2 that marriage is a covenant that is right for us to enter into and to make an oath about, and that God will hold us accountable for such a covenant. No, the issue here is using an oath to swear falsely. So there was a Jewish tradition that allowed loopholes in your oaths and promise-making. So in other words, they knew that you couldn't swear to God or swear by his name. If you did that, well, you were stuck. You had to keep your promise. But they allowed these loopholes. If you swore by other things, well, maybe you don't have to keep those promises. Sort of a way to cross your fingers and say, I didn't really mean it. And particularly Jews were known for this kind of deception. They would swear by great things, but as long as it wasn't by God or by his name, they wouldn't have to keep it. So they would swear by great things like, I swear by heaven, I swear by the earth, by the temple, by my own head. And they would use these great oaths and promises not to keep their word, but to break it. Not to communicate truth to people, but to deceive them. This is what James and Jesus are speaking against. God's people should not be characterized by such deception and misleading. We shouldn't be looking for loopholes in our speech, finding ways to not have to keep our word. We shouldn't be those that overpromise and underdeliver. We shouldn't be those that use our words to swindle people and cheat them out of money. We should be those that keep our word. You see, James' concern is that our God is a God who is true, a God who does not lie. And James' concern is that we are, as God's people, his representatives here on earth. And so how we speak and how we talk says something about God to the watching world. And by the way that we talk, we can either tell true things about God or we can lie about God. In other words, if we use our words to deceive and to lie, As God's people, we're telling the watching world, our God is a deceiver and a liar. You cannot trust him. Or we can, with our words, be the kinds of people that prove ourselves to be trustworthy and in that way represent our God as a trustworthy God. So let me ask you, Christian, how do you use your words? Do you keep your word when you give it? Do you represent God well with your speech? Does your speech in this world communicate what is true about our true God? Or do you lie about him by deceiving others? Do you represent us as the people of God well in this city and in this country as a trustworthy people? Or do you lie about our God? I wonder if you have been oppressed or deceived, even this morning. And you're thinking about particular people that have used their words to deceive you or to oppress you. 
How should we as Christians respond to such oppression and deception? How are we to apply a passage like this when perhaps we're even still now, this day, under such oppression or dealing with such deception? Practically, what do we do? Well, let me give you some practical help. Here are four practical points as we consider responding to oppression and deception. Number one, some practical helps. Trust God to judge. Trust God to judge. That is, do not take revenge. Do not take justice in your own hands. It's clear God is the one who avenges. We can't be trusted to try to enact justice here and now. Only God can do that perfectly. Leave it in his hands. Trust God that one day he will set everything straight. Number two, another practical help. Seek help and counsel in the church. Seek help and advice here in the church. If you're being abused or oppressed or deceived, tell a fellow member that you trust. Seek out an elder and ask for help. We would love to be able to help think through if there's something practical that you can do if you are in a situation of abuse. Do not remain in such a vulnerable position if there is a way out. We would love to work with you to find a way out of such abuse or oppression. Seek help and advice in the church. Number three, perhaps seek legal help. Perhaps seek legal help. There may be a a recourse, a legal recourse that you can take if you are under oppression or abuse that we can pursue. Even Paul, when he was unjustly imprisoned and beaten, claimed his right as a Roman citizen not to be treated in that way. It is possible in certain situations for there to be some legal option and some little bit of justice in this life, though never perfect justice. And number four, number four, pray for your oppressor. Pray for your oppressor. We are called not just to love those that love us, but we are called to follow our Savior and to love our enemies. We are called to pray for those who abuse us. Let me encourage you to realize all that you have been forgiven in Christ and be willing to forgive your oppressor. Be willing to pray for them and even to desire their salvation. Desire that they would not face such a judgment. As you're thinking through these things and considering your own heart. Let me recommend three books for you to read. If you're considering these heart idols that we've talked about, whether money or the deeper idols that are underneath money, let me recommend Tim Keller's little book, Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods. I highly recommend this book as you consider working against the idols that fill our hearts. If you're considering how to use your money in a way that honors God, let me recommend Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's a bit long, but he looks at pretty much every passage in the Bible that has to do with money and considers how we can use our money and resources in light of eternity. That's Randy Alcorn, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And lastly, if you're thinking through how to use your money and particularly how to give here in the local church with the resources that God has given you, let me recommend Randy Alcorn's much smaller book, The Treasure Principle. 
Randy Alcorn's smaller book, The Treasure Principle, Unlocking the Secret of Joyful Giving. This is a classic and would be really helpful for you as you seek to embrace the reality that Scripture promises, that it is better to give than to receive. I wonder if you're listening to the sermon and thinking, I don't fit in any of these categories that this preacher's talking about. I've not been oppressed. I've not been deceived. I'm not an oppressor and I'm not a deceiver. And perhaps you're even thinking, I don't struggle with the love of money. Or at least you don't think you do. Let me encourage you, brother or sister, pray for those around you. There are people nearby you in this room that are struggling in this way. Seek to look out for those that are hurting and help them. Seek to be a help and to defend the helpless. Be a faithful fellow member in the body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all like parts of the body. And he says that when any single part of the body is hurting, the whole body feels the pain. As members of the body of Christ, let us be sensitive to one another and respond to one another with help and with love and with care when any among us is hurting or oppressed. And let me encourage you as, God, as, as we conclude that God is against oppression because God is not an oppressive God. And God is against deception because God is not a deceiving God. Our God uses his authority for good, not for evil. He uses his authority to to build us up, not to tear us down. He uses his authority to save, not to hurt. Let me also encourage you with this reality from the gospel that Christ came not to bring us into oppression or bondage, but to set us free. It is for freedom that Christ came, to deliver us from bondage. Christ did not come to hide the truth from us and to deceive us and mislead us about who God is. No, he came to reveal all of, that, all of who God is with his life and with his words. Such oppression and such deception work against what God is like. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, the Lord will judge the oppressor and the deceiver. Repent from such wicked ways and look to Christ. Put your hope in Him. He will be your Savior and He will be your help and your defender. Put your hopes in Him and you will not be put to shame. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you warn us because you love us. You warn us of the judgment that is coming. And God, we thank you that you also comfort us because you love us. And you do not want us to despair or to doubt. We pray that your people would be encouraged. We pray that your people would have hope. We pray that they would put their hopes not in uncertain riches, but in the hope of Christ's certain and imminent return. Even so come, Lord Jesus, and set everything right. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.